like to welcome Jane Alger to the stage with us. Jane is the um, director of UNESCO, Dublin UNESCO City of Literature, as I mentioned earlier on, the newest city in the network. And we'll talk about Dublin and writing uh, very shortly. Um, it's really interesting. The, I think it was that scene set with, um, in the Liberties in Dublin where the last scene was that where Molly was from. Well, um, the Liberties is actually a place uh, on, the, on the north. Uh, or sorry, in the south of Keynes, of, uh, of the area of Fee, where Molly was from, the north of Keynes, but, but quite close, close to each other. I, I wanted to, um, I suppose, start with both of you asking about history. They're both historical novels in, the, in, the, in many senses. They're both dealing with history and are set in historical periods. Perhaps starting with you, Joseph. Um, you, as you said, you um, the affair between um, John and Molly is real, but her account of it, her letters to him, were kept by his family and destroyed. Mm -hmm. And apart from the one that you give her in the novel, I don't know whether that's the real well, letter. I wrote that for her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to hear it. Um, how were you? Were you very conscious of what you were doing with Irish literary history and real history when you were reinventing this novel? Um, I suppose I was conscious of it, but I didn't feel an overwhelming responsibility. Um, to it in, in that in Ghostlight is, is a work of fiction and I, I think I did in that novel what, what John Singh did and what, what every writer does perhaps which is to take a spark from real life and blow it into a fiction and you know right up until quite recently before the book was, was printed um, I was still sort of dabbling in the idea of changing the characters' names because they really are my um, imaginings. But I decided at the last minute, and I think I'm glad now, to keep their names as a way of just honouring them and nodding to them and including in the texture of the book um, the names of the people who inspired it. But it's really, it's a, it's a book that presumes no knowledge at all of Singh and Molly, and in some ways it isn't even about them. You know, when you describe these novels as historical, novel, something in my soul shrivels, I will say, because I've, having written a number of historical uh, novels now, I think I'm um, entitled to say that I loathe historical novels um, very, very deeply. There's a particular sort of historical novel that we're all familiar with, which is overly researched, usually very chronological, very full of facts, um, and that turns to ashes very quickly, because I don't think that we go to the novel to learn in that sense. We go to the novel in order to be touched. And I think there's a particular onus on a novel that's set in the past to be about now. You know, whether it's John's books or mine, or Colin Tobin, who's written about the past, Sebastian Barry has written about the past. Perhaps the most wonderful novel about the political conflict in the north of Ireland um, over in recent years has been Eugene McCabe's novel, Death and Nightingales which is set in the 1880s, uh, but every single page of it is about now. So I, I think it's, it's really incumbent on anybody setting a story in the past that it has to have, most of all, that quality of empathy, which is what we go to fiction for. And if, if it doesn't have that, if it becomes too laden down with the facts, I think it just doesn't work as, as a fiction. Yes, I, I kind of feel the urge to show you the 
inverted commas around historical novel in my own notes <laughs> to excuse <laughs> myself. <laughs> 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 it's true. Um, well, I know, but you know the kind of book. I do, absolutely. Yeah. The plot is sort of motoring along, everything is fine. Yeah. Suddenly you get to page uh, 30, and it's as though the action stops, and there's a PowerPoint demonstration <laughs> of how fascinating footwear was in 1907. You realise that in his researches in the National Library, the author came across a really riveting article on this subject and just feels that he ha has, has to share this with you. So you sit there attentively, you tolerate the lecture, and then when it's over, you try and get back into the novel. You know? And it's just, it's, it's, always, it's always a mistake. The fewer facts, the better. I have a, an occasional weakness for Georgette Hare, and if I get to page 13, she doesn't describe the type of leather of the hero's boots. I'm a bit disappointed. In terms of going to the novel for um, empathy, it's kind of a contrast to Marion, who obviously doesn't consider the novel a place to discover empathy. She doesn't go to novels at all. Um, in looking at the, the World War One, is a, a really well covered area in terms of novelistic endeavour, especially in recent years. Did you yourself feel any um, sense of foreboding about going back to that particular period and the trenches descriptions of the story that you were trying to tell within that setting? Uh, I felt a certain uh, apprehension about it, I guess, because what I was conscious of was I'd read a lot of novels about the First World War and I didn't want to write a novel which was whose research or story was based on what other people had told me in novels about the war. But so for the most part, I mean, in the novel, I think um, less than a quarter of it probably takes place within the wartime setting itself. I mean, it's, I don't consider, I don't think it's a novel about the war. It's about, it's about various different things, but it's, it's, it's not, I don't think of it as a first world war novel. But the problem with these, uh, these terms are quite reductive in a way, uh, just like historical novel. Um, is um, and when I started publishing novels, I mean, these are publishing terms and bookshop terms. You know, when I started publishing novels um, at the start, I was called a, a historical writer, and then I wrote two novels that had um, crimes at the centre of them, and I was called a crime writer, and then I was a children's writer, and then I was a historical writer again, and then I was a children's writer. And I don't think writers think in those terms. You just think of yourself as a writer. And when it comes to something like the First World War. You, 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 want, you don't want to, uh, you want to honour the people who, if you're writing about people who have not been written about before, and conscientious objectors, I don't think have been written about a great deal in fiction, then you want to do it right. You want to, uh, you want to place both sides of the argument on the page. But it really doesn't matter what you do, because you're still going to get letters from people saying, uh, imagine my disappointment when I was enjoying your novel, but then I got to page 117. <laughs> Where somebody was wearing a, a serge jacket, and of course that jacket wasn't invented for another three years, and it's destroyed the novel. <laughs> and this kind of—I mean, fiction isn't about that. It's um, when you put fictional characters into a real-life setting, that whole world is corrupted anyway. I mean, the, the amount of criticism I got about the various what were, what were considered historical inaccuracies in um, *The Boy in the Striped Pajamas*, which are not historical inaccuracies. They're fictional accuracies. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
people just think you're an idiot, that you don't know these things. But you know, like what Joyce said about grammar, that if you know the rules of grammar, you can change it. When you write a novel set in the past, I think for me, the trick is to know as much about it as you can before you start writing it. And then just decide which you want to put in, which you want to leave out, and which you want to completely change. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the form of your novel and, and also the start of the scene, for example, you draw heavily on um, both real and kind of created uh, newspaper, media, sections of drama, poetry, uh, and um, myth and legend. Does that give you a way of, of creatively grasping the time you write in and the people you're writing about without having a wider view of some sort of realist impetus? Um, no, I mean, the reason that I began to write like that around the time that I wrote The Salesman, which you were kind enough to mention earlier. And that, that's, that's a novel that has two narrators and it's written in two different time zones. A very simple old device. One's, um, one voice is in the form of a diary, so you know it's written quite a jagged, immediate way as diaries tend to be, whether events that happen today. And the other voice is the same man that's looking back having mediated uh, the facts of what happened to him at this particular time. And I just liked the kind of tension that arose in the book between using those two voices. You know, I mean, everything that I do, really, I do to try and try and enrich the reading experience. Like with Star of the Sea, for example, since you mentioned it, I felt from the very beginning that would inevitably be a long book. You know, it's about 450 pages. Its subject matter or the background, the setting of the book is the Irish fan. The book is set in 1847 on a ship journeying from Liverpool by <coughs> Cove, uh, very south of Ireland, to New York. Um, it's the famine, right? Everybody in the book is going to die. And there isn't going to be much activity. So I just thought when I was planning the book, am I going to say to the reader, here is 450 pages of one voice telling you that everything is awful. Um, or will I try you know, and do what Dickens did um, and make the paradoxical attraction of the book that even when you're writing about very dark things, you can brighten the experience by making the storytelling as rich as you can. So I thought, well, we'll have some chapters told by one person and others by another person. Some will be told as they're happening, some will be told far into the future. There's a sequence in Star of the Sea written almost entirely in ballad poems, the words of songs. But it, it's really just to make it um, a more interesting reading experience. And then I suppose I would admit in the case of this room, since the politics of the book, since it's about a contested subject, and the Irish family, right up until my own childhood, I think, was taught in Irish schools through a sort of prism, through a kind of lens of anglophobia, that it was really a way of teaching young Irish girls and boys now how to feel about England now. I mean, to a lesser extent in my childhood, but certainly in the childhood of my parents. So I thought, as a way of being true to the historical facts, without repeating them, without regurgitating them, I'll just have different points of view. You know, it's a way of saying yes, but. And yes, but in the novel is always an interesting thing because all of our lives are full of yes, but. 
every moment of every day. You know, it's one of the things that makes us human is that we have a capacity to make an exception. And also I tried to build into the texture of that book a facility whereby it would argue with itself, where it would embody some of the uncertainties and some of the ambiguities that are actually involved in telling a story about the past. But that was really a secondary thing. The main reason I did it was to try and make the book an interesting read and a pleasurable one. And if Dickens was the kind of guiding spirit in that novel, then Joyce is in first flight to, to a degree as that. Um, and you don't get much more of a Dublin writer in the sense than Joyce. I'm not sure if we've got a Norwich novel in the same way that there might be New York novels or Dublin novels, but it would almost certainly involve trains being late, I sense. Perhaps if I could ask Jane at this point, um, Joseph's um, novel has been. Um, has been the one city, one read novel, novel was read right across the city by a whole range of readers as part of the UNESCO City Literature Programme. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that and kind of perhaps talk about what, um, in your experience, being UNESCO City has done for writing and for readers in your city? Uh, I'll start with the One City, One Book. We do it in April every year. It's a month long festival celebrating one book that's connected with the city. And the choice of the book is simple. It's just three criteria. One is that it has to be connected with the city either through author or by content. And the second one is that uh, it has a, as wide an appeal as possible. For example, we would never choose a book that um, men might want to read or that women might want to read. That's gross generalisation, obviously. And the third criteria is that we have to be able to do something with it. We do more than just uh, talks. Uh, we do events, some of the events we, we did at Ghostlight, because Ghostlight is very much centred on the Abbey Theatre. We launched in the Abbey, underneath the portraits of Singh and Molly, in the bar of the Abbey Theatre, and Joe was there and various other people. And then we had events in St. Patrick's Cathedral, in uh, churches, on the streets, um, people's, houses. people's houses, yes. Joe, I mean, we have this wonderful uh, offer that Joe would go into people's houses to talk to groups, not just book clubs, but any group that wanted to get together. So he went into a Dublin fire station, and they made a great fuss of his son, actually. And he went into people's houses, he went into the Royal Society of Antiquaries and talked to people. And the reading you've just heard from Ghostlight, I've heard, I suppose, not very well, that's probably about my fifth or sixth time here. <laughs> I was actually not going to show up because I thought you could do it. <laughs> well, but I have to say, it is different because in fact it was one day I heard the same reading in the fire station and in the Royal Society of Antiquaries. And in the Royal Society of Antiquaries, it's a Georgian building built in the late 1700s. And there were some very knowledgeable uh, people there who would be very familiar with the period. And the reading was completely different in both places. It was quite extraordinary how the, the book matched its setting. And yet I think people probably got something completely different out of each reading. Um, but the, uh, the One City One Book is, this is, we started in 2006 and we've only had two living writers and it's been a completely different experience each time we've had a living writer. We did Sebastian Barry a long, long way and Ghostlight uh, was the second uh, living, novel, living uh, author and it has been a wonderful experience for everybody. Uh, we're doing Dubliners next year because Joyce is out of copyright, so it's safe to do something with Joyce. <laughs> we can give uh, thumbs up, or thumbs, thumb our noses at Stephen Joyce, again in the privacy of this room. And the following year we're doing Stephen City, which is based on a, um, a very
very famous historical event in Dublin in uh, 1913. Uh, but one of the things we wanted to do with uh, 131 Books was to involve as many people as possible. So we tried to have um, various entry levels from the academic, popular, children, and it's now a tourist attraction in the city. It's uh, shadowed this year by San Jose in California and by a university in Nigeria. And uh, there's huge interest. We did Dorian Gray last year, and we ha I had the uh, extraordinary experience of the Oscar Wilde Society in Japan, who insist on emailing in French. Each book has brought its own its own angle to things, and it's been absolutely wonderful. And there's just so many books we could do. And we only do it uh, once a year. I'm glad to say. Involves <laughs> uh, a lot of planning. But as regards to such, uh, as regards to UNESCO, um, I, I was just thinking. I, I'm here as a Dubliner with two Dublin writers, and my predominant emotion this evening is one of pride uh, that I come from a city that has produced writers like this. And these are only the tip of the iceberg. Dublin produces wonderful writers and always has. Uh, somebody mentioned at the salon this morning. Uh, that there was, uh, um, somebody has said, horrified at the idea that uh, literature might be part of the heritage industry. And that's one thing we are very, um, we feel very strongly about in Dublin. While we're very proud of our literary heritage, they are in the past and they are dead. And we acknowledge the influence they have on present writers. But our focus in UNESCO City of Literature in Dublin is on our present and future writers. So we want to celebrate these guys and people like them, but also uh, mentor and nurture emerging writers because our emerging writers are our great writers of the future. And I, I mentioned um, yesterday that we use the analogy of a football club. That a football club is only as strong as its reserve and junior teams. The first team comes and goes. So we're looking at our youth and our reserve teams. So we are it's a city of writers and readers at every level. And it's not just literature, because it's not just high literature we look on it, it's been a city of words. Uh, words are now all its form. And if you include that in the storytelling, your tradition is very strong in, uh, in Dublin. So that they're all the things we want to celebrate. Well, predominant emotion, I think, since we got the designation last July, the whole city has felt proud. We put up banners and we sang it from the rooftops. We got email congratulations from all over the world. That made us very proud. And we need things to be proud of in Dublin now. And this is something, there's no actually no downside to it. And if there is, we haven't discovered it. And I hope you will discover that soon. Yeah. There's no doubt that Norwich will get it. Well, we're obviously now we're a Premier League football city. <laughs> we have Delia Smith and Stephen Fry on the board. I think that if we need to kind of get some substitutes for our kind of junior squad, we might be coming on to a winner there. <laughs> I'm aware that we're, um, we're a little short of time, but I would like to throw the floor up and ask if you have any questions from the audience. We do have 10 minutes or so to um, field any questions. If you do have any, please raise a hand and we can address them. Actually, see very well from here. Um, there aren't any questions, which is a good There are questions.
Well, I'm, I'm writing a play at the moment um, for the Gates Theatre um, in Dublin. It's an adaptation of a novel by Daphne Du Maurier that I'm very fond of called My Cousin Rachel. Mm-hmm. That's hopefully going to happen <coughs> I think in March or April. And um, I've written two or three plays before. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's always, uh, for me, it's one of the more enjoyable parts of writing, you know, that you, when you, when you get the dialogue right, you, you feel like how to walk off the page, you know, when, when John is reading this antagonistic conversation, it's very interesting how much we reveal about ourselves and how we talk, not necessarily in what we're saying, but the way we, we, we do it, you know, so, so I think he does that very well, but I think it's a, it's one of the joyful aspects of writing dialogue, you know, that it just seems to I've thought about it, but um, and I've tried it, but the, the honest answer is I don't think I'm very good at it. Um, I've, I've tried writing a screenplay, and uh, I don't think I understand the form very well. And I've tried writing the play in the same way I don't think I understand the form. Um, I do understand the form of the novel, and you know, I, I, I most of my reading, 99% of my reading is novels, and. 99% of my writing is novels. And um, I just find I, I, I can't seem to, I don't seem to have another part of my brain that works correctly for, when I, try, I tried writing a screenplay of, of this novel, The Absolutist, and um, I, using a lot of the dialogue in the book, but I don't, but then I, I seem to have these 20 minute scenes of conversation, which don't seem to make any sense at all to me. Um, I remember, um, I remember Mark Herman telling me, who directed um, Striped Pajamas, that he took all the dialogue from the book and put it onto the screen. And he worked off that as a skeleton of the screenplay. So I tried doing that, and, um, and it didn't go anywhere for me. So I don't think I'm very good at it. And I really just, I think I just really want to write novels, to be honest. Fair enough. Uh, that was fascinating when you read that section. I have very clear memories of reading that section. And it was a brilliant reading. There's a really kind of um, warm response from the audience in terms of laughter. I don't remember laughing once during that exchange. I remember being horribly tense and worried about characters. It's, it's very strange because um, when you, and I don't know, you probably do it as well, that when, when the box of books arrive first and you know that you've got you know, months ahead of you of going off and touring and reading to festivals and so on, um, I tend to go through the book and pick out a couple of sections. I think I will read these sections all the time uh, because you'll get better and better at them. You know? So I've read that section uh, over the last month. I've read it about 30 times. And I've read it to stony silence. I've read it to, um, to enormous laughter. Um, there's only one line of the piece that I ever thought was funny, and it has never once got a laugh. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of laughs happening during it, and I thought, this time I'm going to get a laugh from this line. And stony silence. <laughs> so um, it was which, the line. Which line? It's the line where, um, where Tristan says uh, that he's working in publishing and he can't afford to live in centre. And uh, and Marion says no money in it, and he says no money in it for me. And I obviously think that's quite a funny line. I think so. And people laugh. There was random things. But, uh, yeah. Yes. Sorry. No, I was just going to say very briefly. It's a thing you notice when you when you have written a play, or even when you're in a theatre to see the same play more than once. 
how much power the audience has. And the audience really uh, sings, says, in a way, on, on, on the, it's the audience who decide if a play is a comedy or not. And it really does, does vary. You know, if you, if you go to a play on a Saturday night uh, and people are out, you know, for their big night out and they have their box of chocolates and they really want to laugh, and if you go on a Monday night and it's the cheap seats for the students and they're not the Rolodex, they don't want to laugh at all. You know? So the very same text can be completely It's a huge power. Just picking up the juxtaposition of fact and fiction, um, you make a point in Ghostlight about riots on the streets of Dublin uh, over the um, content of Singh's plays. But through Singh in this book, you make some very trenchant comments about Ireland at the time and also the Catholic Church. Uh, have you had any rioting on the streets of Dublin following the reading of your book? <laughs> Alas, no. <laughs> I, love that I mean, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful, but very trenchant. Um, no, I mean, people will have noticed who follow the news in Ireland. Um, it takes an awful lot to make us riot. I mean, we have corrupt politicians, dishonest bankers, uh, the church completely disgraced, the country slowly sinking into the sea. Uh, but we never, you know, we give out about it in private, but we never take to the streets the way they do in Greece. Uh, you know, we don't really have the weather closures. No, we don't. <laughs> 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 I sit at home and write novels about it. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, so no, I'm afraid that the, the days of literary rioting are gone. But we'd all love that to happen, obviously, with one of our books. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I was just thinking when Jane was talking, I think hand in hand with the downturn that we've been having in Ireland over the last couple of years has been quite an upsurge of interest in the arts. You know, I've, I've noticed that audiences for readings and so on book groups and reading clubs and all of that up in the length and breadth of the country have, have got bigger and every little sort of village in Ireland uh, seems to have its literary festival or its arts festival and I think maybe there is a sense that during those years where the country seemed to be doing very well that an older value of affection for the arts had got thrown out Bit, but I think people are really coming back to it in a big way now. Um, one of the events for the City of Culture was uh, an event at the new conference centre in Dublin, I think it was, yes, in March, um, which was, you know, a long night of many authors reading and musicians performing. Um, 2,000 Dubliners turned up and you know, more were turned away. And I think a lot of us thought, even those of us who were fortunate enough to take part in the event, we sometimes wondered, would it be full? It's a massive um, venue. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful celebration of the written word. And there really was a kind of electricity in the air that night. And you felt people were saying, you know, we want this. But we're tired of the headlines of failure. You know, that on this ground of, you know, the written word and the arts and our music, that we still have something that we can take a pride in, something that everywhere you go in the world brings a kind of dignity and an honour to Ireland in a time when we sorely needed it. So I, I think people have really gone beyond now an affection 
that's what we are at. So they feel us sort of ownership and pride in them, which is which is a lovely thing. I mean, that's one of the things that makes it a nice place to live. Well, Anne Enright has written recently about the literary flowering that's going on in Ireland at the moment. So it may have something to do with the recession that many people are more challenged, less materially distracted. Distracted by, not distracted by the cars they drive, whether they should change their car, change their house, they're writing their books. Just in terms of um, the rides, though, I once had an experience. Uh, it was at an event like this, I was at this part of the event during the, the Q&A in New York, where a man leapt out of the audience and um, punched me off my seat. And then, uh, yeah, just, yeah, just left it, came out of the audience, came downstairs and just went for me. The book were you reading for? A point strike pajamas. So, you, and you're previous to regions here, and did it? Yes. That's a good outtake. Maybe it is me, I'm seeing a connection. <laughs> John's standing elsewhere this evening. It's wonderful that literature can provoke such a reaction. I I'm hoping it doesn't provoke that reaction this evening. Um, we have run out of time, but the authors will be signing books outside and we'll be happy to answer further questions there. I'd like to thank both Jane for coming and talking to us about uh, WNESCO City Literature and Joseph and John for um, two spectacular readings which have really ended our week beautifully. So thank you both very much.